This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss Medicare's alternative payment models, APMs, or more specifically, how APMs can be improved. With me to discuss the topic is President and CEO of the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform, Harold Miller. Harold, welcome back to the program. Thank you, David. It's nice to be here. Listeners uh, may recall I spoke with Mr. Miller in September 2015, moreover, about bundled payments. Mr. Miller's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, the 2015 MACRA law created Medicare's advanced payment models, again, APMs. These are otherwise termed pay-for-performance reimbursement models where the provider assumes financial risk based on historical and regional spending and quality measurement performance. There are currently a dozen APMs, although this year Medicare Advantage could qualify. Almost all of these are demonstrations, and the flagship of APMs, or the one of current significance, is the ACA's Medicare Church Savings Program, more commonly termed ACOs, uh, because the vast majority of APM beneficiaries, or over 10 million, are assigned to it, or again, ACOs. The ACO program, just to note, is currently in its eighth year. It is unclear to what extent ACOs have reduced Medicare spending growth, largely because CMS does not formally evaluate the program. If Medicare program is, however, to remain financially solvent, uh, fee-for-service APMs must produce meaningful savings results since the Medicare Advantage program that currently enrolls over 33 Medicare beneficiaries and is rapidly growing does not, in federal financial accounting terms, score savings. With me is again to discuss APMs, uh, the flaws in their current design, and moreover how they can be better designed or generate meaningful savings is Harold Miller. So that is background. Harold, let me uh, start by asking, we just celebrated, or some did, uh, the nine-year anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. So if I could begin by asking, what's your overall assessment of efforts, uh, moreover under the ACA, to reduce uh, Medicare spending growth? over almost now uh, a decade's time? Well, I, I think it was called the Affordable Care Act, but um, most of the law and most of the attention has really been about improving access to insurance. And the, the law has clearly done that, but I think that the track record in terms of actually making health care more affordable is much weaker. There really weren't, weren't that many provisions in the law designed to deal with that. And the few that were there have had um, pretty slow implementation, I would say. Um, one of the things, as you want to talk about alternative payment models today, one of the hopes um, was that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation that was created under the Affordable Care Act would really spark a lot of innovation in terms of the way Medicare and then hopefully other payers would pay for health care, but um, it's been pretty disappointing in terms of how much or how little it has done to, to do that uh, in those nine years. Yes, correct. Uh, I was going to follow up with your view of the 
uh, Medicare Insurance Savings Program December final rule, but let's we'll get to that. So let's okay. move on to generally. Uh, you've written now numerous detailed reports regarding Medicare payment reform over the last several years. Let's focus on your latest work. Uh, that is your January report titled "The Problem with Medicare's Alternative Payment Models and How to Fix Them." Uh, let me start by asking, uh, what would an idealized APM generally look like? Well, I think, in my opinion, if it were an ideal model, and I don't know that there's there's no one ideal model, but the, the, the elements of it would need to address the problems that exist in fee-for-service payment uh, without... Um, taking away the strengths of fee-for-service payment and would actually enable physicians, hospitals, other health care providers to be able to deliver care to patients in, in ways that would be both better for the patient and lower spending for Medicare or other payers. There are many, many opportunities in um, to reduce spending uh, without hurting patients and in many ways to, to, to help patients. Uh, for example, there are many things that are done in healthcare that are um, uh, problematic for patients. There are services that don't get delivered that would benefit patients, um, and there are barriers in the payment system to doing that. So an ideal payment system would remove those barriers in the payment system that would then enable um, uh, healthcare providers to deliver better care at lower cost. And that's really one of the problems with the, the, the most of the current models is they don't really remove the barriers that exist. Um, and that's why I think that the, the results have been so lackluster. All right, let's get into the specifics here. So you noted there are barriers. Uh, what do you see as some of the primary or major barriers? Well, one of the major barriers is it's 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 called the fee-for-service system, but there actually isn't a fee for every service, and there isn't a fee for many services that would be um, of high value. Um, the, the simplest example of that, to me, is that um, there is no payment for your physician to answer the phone and talk to you if you have a problem. Um, if you can get to the physician's office, the physician will be paid to see you in person, um, but you may not have needed to come in person. Uh, you may have been able to resolve the problem on the phone, but the physician doesn't get paid for that. Um, if you go to the emergency room, uh, the emergency room will get paid for that. The ambulance driver who takes you to the emergency room will be paid for that, but um, if you could have resolved your problem on the phone with the physician, the physician doesn't get paid for that. And it's not necessarily that you should you you want to pay for phone calls, but if you only pay for office visits and the physician then has to spend their day filled up with office visits, they have no time to be able to respond to things. So there's many many circumstances in which a patient really could identify a problem early or resolve a problem early uh, in that fashion, but that doesn't get paid for. Now that's that's a simple example. A larger example is that there's been many, many, many projects that have shown that if you have a primary care practice or a specialty practice and they hire a nurse to be able to work with a patient with chronic disease, you will reduce the frequency with which that patient ends up in the hospital or ends up being readmitted to the hospital if they were already in the hospital. But Medicare still doesn't pay for that. 
Um, they pay for certain certain arrangements for certain subsets of patients, but not all patients, and it isn't necessarily the payment isn't aligned with doing that. So as a practical matter, that service doesn't get delivered, and as a result of not delivering that service, a lot of patients end up in the hospital, which is a much more expensive um, thing to happen and not very good for the patient because Medicare and other payers don't pay for the service that could have prevented that. Okay, thank you. Amongst others, uh, you note in this January document, other than communication, uh, there is generally outside of hospice no payment for providing a palliative care. Of course, right. there is limited, uh, in fact, just recently there was none uh, payment for providing non-health care services. And of course, uh, the provider can get paid for reimbursed services, uh, whether or not, as you say, uh, the services are delivered in the highest quality way and whether the services have a positive or even negative effect on the patient. So variations uh, on a theme here. Right. So let's go to, so obviously the solution or a solution would be to start paying for these services that would be allow care to be delivered in, in some more efficient manner. Um, what other, you do know a number of other uh, opportunities uh, for how these uh, models can be improved. What are some of those other uh, opportunities? And, of course, uh, you do talk about uh, or imply certainly capitation and, as well, uh, make note of indirectly uh, at least a risk adjustment. Right. I mean, so f first of all, fundamentally, almost all of the things that Medicare has done in the space of alternative payment models doesn't actually pay differently for anything. They're all premised on the notion of shared savings, which says that if you can figure out where to find the money to deliver a service that doesn't get paid for today, and if it, in fact, reduces spending, then in a year or so, maybe we'll give you some of the money back, which doesn't exactly work very well for the primary care physician who's being underpaid uh, today. Some of the models say, well, we'll give you more flexibility by giving you a bundled payment, but the problem is then the bundle payment rolls everything together and it doesn't actually adjust for differences in patient needs. One of the strengths that people criticize fee-for-service is though it somehow has no redeeming values. Fee-for-service actually wouldn't have persisted this long if it wasn't, didn't have some redeeming values. One of the things about fee-for-service is that it's a naturally risk-adjusted system. If a patient needs more services, then they can get more services and they'll be paid for under fee-for-service. The problem is whenever you substitute some of these alternative payment models, population-based payments and bundled payments, that eliminate the ability to deliver more services to patients who need them, you have the risk that you're going to have patients who are needier patients not being able to get the care that they need because now they're being underpaid for. We may be overpaying in some cases for patients who are healthier today, but we may be under these under models we are underpaying for the patients who are sicker. So I think those, those things have to be um, uh, addressed, and most of the models really don't tie quality to the individual patient. They're all based on population averages. So if on average the patients are getting good quality, then you get a bonus or you don't get a penalty. But the individual patient doesn't care that the fact that all the other patients are doing fine. The issue for them is, am I getting good care? And none of these models tie payment, payment to whether the individual patient 
themselves is getting the care that they need. And I think that's a serious problem from the perspective of the individual patient who's in fact paying a paying cost sharing for all of these services and would like to know that whenever they pay that amount that they're going to be getting good care. Mm-hmm. You did, uh, did mention uh, underuse and that's the potential stinting uh, problem. Right. Uh, you do also make note of the fact that um, while APMs are by definition defined as putting the provider quote-unquote, at a risk beyond, financial risk beyond a nominal amount, there is little or no evidence uh, to support that care improves when providers are under uh, financial risk. So this, and this, these models are based on, on a certain expectation that's absent evidence. The other point that you make... Well, a major... I would just, I would just, I would interrupt for a second okay, and sure. say, I mean, one of the, I think one of the myths is that somehow there is no risk in the fee-for-service system. Mm-hmm. which is completely false. I mean, any physician or hospital that is delivering services under a fee-for-service, whether they're paid for every individual service, they're at risk. They have to hire staff. They have to, you know, buy equipment. They have to do all of that, and they're at risk as to whether they're going to get enough patients to be able to cover their costs. So they're at risk. But they're at risk for something that they at least believe that they can control that you know based on their quality whether they can get enough patients to be able to do it one of the problems with the way the alternative payment models has been structured is that it's not just putting the patient the physician or the hospital at risk it's putting them at risk for something that they may not be able to control so for example in Medicare's oncology care model which is designed to improve the care that's delivered to patients with cancer and the payment goes to oncologists Medicare puts them at risk for everything that happens to the patient while they're getting chemotherapy. If they're in a car accident, if they fall and break their leg, if they've had a pre-existing heart condition and have a heart attack, which has nothing to do with their chemotherapy treatment, the oncologist is penalized for that. Um, And that's the kind of risk that people can't manage um, and um, uh, why they don't want to participate in something whenever you say you're going to be at financial risk, basically trying to turn individual physicians into health plans. Yes, thank you. Uh, I was going to get to that. You do note uh, this issue of uh, providers' payments should be based on things providers can control. That would be the solution. Another example would be under ACOs. If an assigned beneficiary gets care and they're prospectively assigned, gets care from a, a physician outside of the ACO panel, the ACO is responsible or that utilization reimbursement goes towards the ACO's benchmark. Even again, uh, that uh, assigned uh, beneficiary received that care from someone else outside the ACO and it was unbeknownst to the ACO. Right. And I mean, under the, under the Medicare Shared Savings Program, there's no actual arrangement between the physicians and the patient. The patient gets assigned, as you say, or attributed by Medicare based on a statistical calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody knows at any given point in time whether the patient is really going to continue to be assigned to the, to the ACO or not. Um, and so it's very difficult. There's no You would want to have the patient say, "Yes, I'm signing up to be have my care managed by the accountable care organization." And what's the deal? And the deal would be you use the physicians that we have, and you use the services that we have, and the patient would say, "Yes, that sounds like a good thing to me." But it's, but none of that happens. What happens is that it's a whole it's a completely completely secret process. 
So the physician is surprised that a patient has been assigned to them, and the patient doesn't even know that this ACO exists, so it's hard to imagine how that can improve care. So let me, let me just stay with that, and this, is a, this has been a much debated, so the idea here was that they're assigned based on their historical utilization, um, but that uh, CMS wanted to uh, allow beneficiaries to still have choice as opposed to uh, selecting Medicare Advantage in that you're enrolled for the year. Unlike, uh, again, MAU enroll, uh, ACOs you're assigned, more than likely without the beneficiary's knowledge, although I suppose that might be changing. Um, do, you, do you think that th- that's a fatal flaw? Uh, the phrase oftentimes used at ACO beneficiaries are free range in that uh, they can go and see whomever they want because, again, they maintain choice. But, of course, it makes it difficult for uh, the ACO who's on the hook for a certain benchmark to manage utilization if that's the case. So is that a fatal flaw? I think it's, I think it is a fatal flaw, but I think it's also, it's, it's, it fails to recognize the fact that there are different patients who have different needs. So the ACO notion is that patients have multiple problems and that they should get coordinated care. So, okay, if a patient has multiple problems, then they should say, they should see this ACO as the place that's going to deal with all those things and they should sign up for it. If I'm a healthy patient and all I need right now is a flu shot and I go into the doctor to get a flu shot and I have no other problems and I'm not signing up for anything, then I should just be able to go and get my flu shot. But under the ACO program, I could actually be assigned to that ACO because I had one visit (laughs) during the course of the year with a primary care physician, which from my perspective as a patient was not intended to commit me to anything other than getting a flu shot. But from the ACO's perspective, all of a sudden, they have that patient. And again, there's no, there is no contract being signed. There's nothing saying, we'll give you your flu shot, but you have to recognize that now you have to use our services for everything else. It would be like, it would be like buying a book from Amazon and then suddenly finding that you were not allowed to shop anywhere else secretly because you bought at Amazon. You are now committed that you have to buy everything at Amazon for the next year. No one, would, no one would voluntarily sign up for that. Maybe some people would voluntarily say, that's a good deal if I get a special deal and here's the contract. But no one would be happy if they said that. No one would be happy knowing that they could only buy the car at the car dealer if, in fact, they committed to only get their service done at that car dealer forever after or for the next year. But that's what we're doing in the Medicare program. We're saying if you happen to walk in and need one service or you have one problem, somehow you're committed to an entire system for a whole year. Well, actually, the problem got worse because CMS is now uh, moving more towards prospective assignment, which means uh, you have uh, a panel of beneficiaries on January 1, and regardless of where they uh, seek care, um, you're responsible for the utilization for that calendar year performance year as opposed right. to perspective. So now it has nothing to do now it has nothing to do with what I actually did this year. It's what I did last year. Right. So if I came to see you last year, all of a sudden I'm assigned to you for next year. Right. You know, even though I might have decided that I didn't want to see you anymore next year, you know. But but under medical we'll look and now prospect it's not it's not prospective an agreement to prospectively use the ACO. It's prospective assignment based on what happened to you last year. Correct. Yes. Um, 
Let me ask a question that I don't hear much discussed or debate. So initially, ACOs could not participate uh, in BPCI, the bundled payment arrangement, and then when in 2015 the related comprehensive care for joint replacement was announced uh, for hips and knees, ACOs were precluded, but then CMS allowed ACOs to also participate uh, uh, in bundled payment arrangements. They also now allow ACOs to participate in the comprehensive primary care plus demonstration. So my question is, do you think this is helpful for providers to be able to uh, play in multiple uh, pools and or uh, by allowing such, there's some tacit admission that there's overlap or redundancy because one could argue an ACO is effectively effectively does bundled payment, meaning they have, they're responsible for utilization for that bundle of services for that patient for A and B services for that year. Well, they're not really. I mean, the problem is that all of this is fundamentally, it's all a shared savings model, which says that after the fact, we will decide whatever, look at what everybody's spending, we'll decide whether or not they save money, and then we'll give it to somebody. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is that there is no, nobody really has a sense of what the, the amount of money they have is to work with. Now, that, that's one of the problems in fee-for-service is, in fact, that we sell, we sell health care by the part. We don't sell whole products. We sell people individual parts of services. But even in the bundled payment initiatives, there actually isn't a, any well-defined thing that when you walk in the door to get hip surgery, there is not actually a bundled payment for hip surgery. It's only after you go to the hospital and have the hip surgery, and if you come out of the hospital and you are assigned to the hip surgery DRG, which you'll only be assigned to the hip surgery DRG if you didn't have complications severe enough to assign you to another DRG, then you're in the bundle. Well, that's not really a bundle. A bundle says, I'm coming in the door to get hip surgery. I want to know what it's going to cost me to get hip surgery. I want to know that the person who's giving me hip surgery is, has, has a warranty on that, that if there's something that goes wrong, it's their fault, they're going to fix it, and they're not going to charge me anymore for it. And CMS has failed to do that yet. So that's why there's this fight between everybody, because nobody knows in advance that the patient is really theirs. Nobody knows what the number is that they have to work with. And it's a problem from the ACO's perspective is because the ACO doesn't have any good way of, if there is savings, of knowing who is responsible for those savings. There's no way to say, ah, it was the orthopedic surgeons that generated the savings. So we will allocate a portion of the shared savings to the orthopedic surgeons because they are the ones that did the work. And so you have, end up having this sort of weird prisoner's dilemma problem in ACOs is that any of the individual members of the ACO are going to say, well, do I, do I work hard to try to save money uh, with the hope of getting shared savings? Because there's no assurance. The ACO has no mechanism of assuring that if I generate savings, I'll get some of that money back. It's generally just spread across all the folks in, in the ACO, and a lot of it goes to the hospital first. So you say, well, geez, what would be better for me would be, I hope somebody else generates savings. I'll continue to do what I've always done, and then I'll get a piece of the savings that somebody else generates. So guess what? Nobody generates any savings. 
CMS terms this, who gets the savings, accounting for overlap, and that's the instance where the assigned ACO beneficiary is also uh, receives a hip or knee or some bundled payment under one of these other bundled payment demonstrations. Uh, who gets the savings is, is really uh, a very difficult uh, exercise in calculating. We have time for, let me ask you about, uh, you do serve on the, uh, the PTAC, Yes, the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory, advisory Committee. committee. Thank you very much. Uh, the committee, I just looked at the uh, website, which is hosted by ASPE, has received over 30 proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, the committee has made some recommendations for testing of some of these uh, proposals. Uh, to my knowledge, and I uh, feel free to correct me, to my knowledge, CMS has not fielded any of these recommended CMS has not implemented a single thing that PTAC has recommended. Okay, so my question is, what's your understanding of why that is, and what do you think ultimately PTAC can contribute to improving our our uh, uh, number of alternative payment models? Well, I think we we may we may know a little bit more in the next few months. Uh, there are uh, indications. Um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation has indicated that they are, in fact, going to be announcing soon some models that were based on PTAC recommendations. What no one is clear about is what it means to be based on PTAC recommendations. Um, and I, I think. One of the concerns that I have, at least, is that when you have physicians who've gone to the trouble of bringing in a payment model, and PTAC has said that that model makes sense, it may need some tweaks, but it makes sense, but I think that there should be a deference to that, and CMMI should try to implement that model that the physicians develop, not simply take cherry-pick whatever aspects of it they like and then turn it into something else. Because I do think we have much too much of a top-down approach in healthcare, and I think we need to get a bottom-up approach. We need to have the people who are actually taking care of patients, identifying what could be done differently to improve care to patients and reduce spending, what the barriers are in the payment system, and how to overcome that. And I think that if we allow that bottom-up approach, we will get a lot better results than what we've been getting so far a lot faster. Thank you. I will make note that one of your colleagues, Bob Berenson, had a recent essay out noting that the PTAX authorization should be expanded to be able to address shortcomings or imperfections in the fee-for-service schedule. So I'll just right. make note of that. Well, and that's, and that's in fact because there are barriers in the current payment system that you don't necessarily need a whole model for. You ought to be able to fix them, but that's not within the PTAX scope. Right, current scope, correct, yes. So with that, Harold, we're at our, our time boundary. Again, your January report, the problems with Medicare's alternative payment models and how to fix them, and the related December report, how to create an alternative payment model, uh, are on your website. So with that, uh, I thank you for your time, and let's see where we get with PTAC and where CMMI goes this year uh, relative to uh, new APM models, including everyone awaits the direct primary um, uh, or direct provider contracting, rather, Uh, Well, we can keep our fingers crossed that that we will get better and faster progress than we've had so far. Thank you for your interest, David. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com.
Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.